Today's lesson is Saul, the people's king. This um, lesson is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 7 through 10. God had raised up Samuel to judge his people and to call them to repentance. Under Samuel's leadership, Israel experienced freedom from the surrounding nations, restoration of land, and revival in worship. During his lifetime, Samuel traveled throughout the nation to ensure the people were faithful to the covenant the Lord had made with them. But when Samuel was old, his sons, whom he had appointed as judges, proved to be wicked leaders who took advantage of the people. So the Israelites, in their discontentment, demanded to have a king like the nations around them. Just like discontentment, a fad will come and go in our lives as our desires change. The things we cannot live without one moment become old news the next. It seems that we're never satisfied. Such was the case for the people of Israel. The Lord had delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt and made a covenant with them to be their God. From time to time, Israel worshipped the Lord faithfully. Yet they quickly grew dissatisfied with God. If they weren't turning to the gods of the surrounding nations, they still wanted to be like the nations. In doing so, they not only rejected the Lord as their Savior, but also as their rightful King. The first point in this lesson is an earthly king is demanded by the people. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4-9. through 9. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. When they said, Give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, Listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. The prophet Samuel who also had priestly duties and served as a judge over Israel, had been faithful in his service to the Lord all of his life. But now Samuel was getting old. And to help him serve the people, he had appointed his two sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges in Beersheba, a city on the southern edge of the Promised Land. But these sons did not follow the faithful path of their father, Instead of serving the people, they served themselves and took advantage of the people by taking bribes and perverting justice. It seems that even the best of leaders are sometimes poor judges of character. This, of course, recalls the circumstances surrounding Eli and his two wicked sons. Their, their sins resulted in the capture of the Ark of the Covenant the symbol of God's presence, and the Israelites being oppressed by the Philistines for 20 years. 
The people clearly were not happy with Samuel's sons, and for good reason. They didn't appreciate the injustices they suffered under these unjust judges. And likely they did not want a repeat of their early struggles because of Eli's sons. So the elders of Israel took their grievances directly to Samuel at Ramah, his hometown. But the rightness of their concerns was quickly overshadowed by the nature of their solution and request. Instead of a judge raised up by the Lord, they asked for a king, for a monarchy like all the other nations had. God knew the Israelites eventually would ask for a king, even for one like all the other nations had. So the Lord had given his people instructions through Moses for how a king should be appointed after they settled into the land. First, the king should be the one the Lord chooses. Second, he should be an Israelite, not a foreigner. Third, he must not be arrogant or self-serving, acquiring many horses, wives, or much silver and gold for himself. And fourth, he was to write a copy of the law and read it every day and obey its instructions. But just because God planned ahead for this, the circumstance did not absolve the Israelites of wrong motivations. A desire to be like or emulate the nations was contrary to God's design for his people, who were to be a blessing to the nations through being set apart from them and their wickedness. To Samuel, the leader's request for a king seemed wrong. But to get a clear, unbiased evaluation of people's demands, Samuel took his concern to the Lord in prayer. It's likely Samuel took the people's demand as a personal rejection, since that was addressed as part of the Lord's response. Though Samuel's sons were unfaithful, Samuel himself had remained faithful, and judges had served in their role, preserving the peace until they died. Here the people were requesting a king, While Samuel was still alive, they asked him to appoint his replacement. But the Lord highlighted the real motivation behind Israel's request. This was less about Samuel and more about a rejection of God, who was their rightful king. Unfortunately, Israel had a track record for abandoning the true God and worshiping other gods, both during their exodus from Egypt and during the period of the judges in the Promised Land. This request for a king was but one more example of Israel's turning their backs on God. It seems Israel was never satisfied with the Lord or his servants. Nevertheless, God would grant the people's request, but not before instructing Samuel to warn them in no uncertain terms about the reality of life under an earthly king like those of the nations around them. Though God desired a king who carefully studied and obeyed his law, Israel's thirst for political and military might all but but ensured a disappointing end. Samuel warned Israel about what they would get by demanding a king, but this didn't, didn't seem to dissuade them. So the Lord worked through Samuel to anoint an impressive king for the people the kind of king that they wanted. The second point in this lesson is an impressive king is anointed for the people. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 9 verses 1 and 2 and then following up with chapter 10 verses 1 through 10. 
There was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphia, son of a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it, poured it out on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Today, when you leave me, you'll find two men at Rachel's grave at Zelza in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you were, went looking for have been found, and now your father has stopped being concerned about the donkeys and is worried about you, asking, what should I do about my son? You will proceed from there until you come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one bringing three goats, one bringing three loaves of bread, and one bringing a clay jar of wine. They will ask how you are and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will come to Gibeah of God, where there are Philistine garrisons. When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you. You will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead of me to the Gilgal. <clears throat> I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show, show you what to do. When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. The author of 1 Samuel introduced a new and very important character in chapter 9. Saul was the son of Kish a Benjamite of high standing among his tribesmen. Kish's genealogy firmly established his son. Saul is a true Israelite with a well-documented family tree. Given that Kish had donkeys and servants, he would have been wealthy, though perhaps from a small clan. On top of that, Saul was a physical specimen, standing head and shoulders above the rest, literally. Israel had asked for a king like all other nations. As a commentator, Robert Bergen states, and the Lord was giving them the desires of their heart, even down to the physical details. With the prospect of a young man like Saul ascending to a throne over Israel, it appears the story is moving in the right direction, but a human assessment of potential is a far cry from the reality that often plays out. Okay, now looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. One day the donkeys wandered off, so Kish sent Saul and a servant to go find them. After searching far and wide for some time, Saul suggested that they go home before his father began to worry about them. But the servant urged Saul to inquire of the man of God in the nearby city of Ramah. That's where they met Samuel whom the Lord had told just the day before that he would soon meet the future king. Samuel quickly informed the men that the donkeys had been found. 
and then invited them to a feast, where Saul was given a prominent seat and the best portion of the meal. The next morning, Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it over Saul's head, and anointed Saul as the regal leader over the people of Israel. This scene is crucial for understanding the story as a whole in at least three ways. First, pouring oil on Saul's head was a symbol of God's favor and blessing on his servant. Second, the term ruler meant that the Israelite leader served under Yahweh's authority since he alone is the true king of Israel. Third, Samuel noted that Israel was Yahweh's inheritance. Thus, the king of Israel was the Lord-appointed caretaker of his, his possession, which meant, this was, <clears throat> which meant this man was not free to rule however he pleased, but only according to the Lord's word and God's will. Samuel then prophesied several signs that would take place. As Saul made his way home, signs that proved Samuel's status as a prophet of the Lord. And they also confirmed Saul's appointment for service as the prince of Israel. The first sign would be two men informing Saul that the missing donkeys had been found and that his father was now concerned for Saul's well-being. The second side would be three men presumably going to offer a sacrifice to God at Bethel who would offer Saul two loaves of bread. The third and final sign would be the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon Saul, leading him to prophesy with the prophets he would meet at Gibeah, his hometown. Note that this sign would occur at a place occupied by Philistines, which suggests that God was doing a powerful work even in the presence of his enemies whom Saul was anointed to defeat. Similarly, the Spirit of God had rushed upon Samson to kill a lion and many Philistines. All these signs came to pass, but not before God changed Saul's heart. The Lord prepared Saul to begin serving as king. This may seem strange to us since Saul's appointment was the result of Israel's rejection of the Lord. Nevertheless, God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and with whom he wants. The Lord sovereignly works out his goodwill through human shortcomings. The third point is a reluctant king is presented to the people. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, You must set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? The Lord replied, There he is, hidden among the supplies. They ran and got him from there. 
When he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. The secret anointing of Saul would of course need to be made public at some point if Saul were to actually lead as a king. So Samuel called for the people of Israel to meet at Mizpah, which was about seven miles north of Jerusalem, and served as a meeting place for God's people. Ironically, the site chosen for the installation of Saul, the Benjamite, its king, was also the site where Israel had previously covenanted to exterminate the tribe of Benjamin before they had compassion on the same. Therefore, Samuel again conveyed the Lord's displeasure over Israel's continual rebellion against him, not only as their ruler, but as their God and Savior as well. The Lord, after all, was the one who had saved them from all their troubles and afflictions, including their slavery in Egypt, the nations that had threatened them in the wilderness, and the peoples who attacked them in the Promised Land. God alone deserved their full honor, devotion, and obedience. But once again, the Israelites rejected their God. Israel sinned against their rightful divine king by demanding an earthly king like those of the nations around them, and the Lord would discipline them on this occasion by giving them exactly what they wanted, a king who eventually would take advantage of his people. Thus Samuel summoned the tribes and clans to present themselves so that the Lord can identify the new king. With all the people gathered, Samuel officiated as the tribe, clan, and ultimately person were selected in a ceremony strangely akin to the identification of Achan as the cause of Israel's defeat in Ai. Whatever method was used in the selection process, the result aligned with God's will, and Saul was chosen as king over Israel. But when he was identified, Saul was nowhere to be found. The Lord had to inform the people where Saul was was because he'd hidden himself. But why? More than likely because he feared the weight of the responsibilities before him. The man who stood head and shoulders above the rest of the people tried to make himself as small as possible when the moment of his appointment and appointment as king arrived. Nevertheless, when the people finally laid their eyes on Saul, a paragon among the Israelite population. They knew at last that this was their king like those of the other nations. Though the people sinfully demanded an earthly king, God chose to give them what they asked for, and he has himself appointed Saul as king. Here we see a bit of the mystery between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. As Joseph explained to his brothers many years before, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good. Just as God had worked then, so too would he work through this occasion for his glory and their good. Israel rebelled against God by asking for a king, but Saul was the king the Lord had chosen for this moment to inaugurate the kingship over his people, a plan he had in place before the foundation of the world. This sense of mystery will remain for us on this side of eternity and perhaps even after. But the unknown does negate God's providential rule, 
nor does not, excuse me, does not negate God's providential rule, nor our real responsibility to obey his commands. God knew Israel would ask for a king so they could resemble the nations around them. And God also had promised that the kings would be in Israel's future. To Abraham, Sarah, and Jacob, the Lord foretold that kings would come from their lineage. The installation of Saul as king over Israel was but the first step in God's fulfillment of these promises and expectations. Their culmination is found in the incarnation of the Son of God at the fullness of time, so that he would save his people from their sin and rule as their rightful, divine, and earthly king forevermore. The Israelites hoped for long life for King Saul. But with King Jesus, who died and rose again, there is no end to the blessing of his righteous reign. I want to close with a voice from church history today from Athanasius. I never can say his name. He um, lived from 293 to 373. There were thus two things which the Savior did for us by becoming man. He banished death from us and made us anew, and invisible and imperceptible as in himself he is, he became visible through his works and revealed himself as the word of the Father, the ruler and king of the whole creation. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word and for the, the blessing of this lesson of your willingness to provide for us even when you know we really don't need what we're begging for. And I also thank you for your provision to work it out into what we do need. Lord, I pray for those who are sick or hurting or um, just feeling abandoned after the loss of loved ones or Whatever situation someone finds themselves in today, I just pray, Lord, that you would be with them and lift them up. And I pray for everyone that listens to this lesson, that you would just inspire them to go out and shine the light, the gospel light of Jesus Christ, wherever they go in the coming week. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.